Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Rachel Connor with us. Good evening. Good evening. And we've got Dan Morganti. Good to be here. It is excellent to have you. You don't know how good. Uh, I'm very stoked that you're available. Uh, Tonight, we've got a great show coming up for you. We've gotten a little bit ahead of uh, International Women's Day, really. We're speaking with Professor Jeannie Patterson about deep fakes, which recently plagued Taylor Swift during her world tour. And we're also going to dive into a yet-to-be-released book um, all about feminism in the algorithm age with author Carla Wiltshire. So I'm pretty stoked about those conversations. Before we get there, are you having a good week in tech? How's tech treating you, Dan? Um, Yeah, not too bad. Just a little bit of bureaucracy with uh, websites and signing up to things and um, using online stores, which have been actually quite seamless, so... I feel like they're getting better. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. That's a good. Is that just a good news story for like the square spaces of the world? Are you talking massive, so. massive vendors? I mean, it probably hurts the wallet because they've learned to um, have less friction when you're going from clicking on the thing to buying the thing. Very but, nice. Yeah. Very nice. The A/B testing is working. Yeah. Rachel, what about you? How's your week in tech? Uh, I think I'd probably describe it uh, as being thwarted slightly. <laughs> Nothing drastic, but just inconvenient enough for you know mm. occasional swearing and. Fist shaking. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Um, it's, it's all swings and roundabouts here. In the news yesterday, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency revealed their latest data on the gender pay gap. Now, this is the first year that they're able to make this whole report transparent. And it's expressing the difference between what men and women are paid in the same organisation. It's not the same as equal pay because that would be where they were looking at the same role um, wages uh, for different or for different work of equal or comparable value, but in Australia, you know, having equal pay has been a legal requirement since 1969. This this is the gender pay gap, so it's not you know comparable roles and what have you. Some of the um, some companies have been submitting their data to the Workplace Gender Equality Agency (WGEA) for almost a decade, um, and some of the biggest and most famous brands have revealed to have substantial gaps, some paying women on average less than 50 cents for every dollar the man in a company earns. Um, what did you see, Dan, in this report? Um, I'm just, like, look, like looking at the big numbers here. So mm. just, like, 30% of em- employers have a median gender pay gap between the target range of uh, minus 5 and plus 5%, um, and 62% of median employer gender pay gaps are over 5% and, of course, in favour of men. Um so, yeah, I'm just, like, focusing on the big ones. Um, I've started uh, in a new position doing telecommunications um, installation, um, and the gap there is 24.2%. So um, I actually don't work with any women either, so there yeah, might be yeah. um, something to be said about attracting um, 
people to the position. I mean, it's hard to get anyone to do it because it's a lot of traveling and working out in the country on top of a windy hill, yeah. um, climbing towers. and. Well, that is some of the interesting data there that it does give you broad percentage breakdowns on you know the genders represented within the sample data. Um, due to the small numbers and voluntary reporting, input from non-binary people has not been included in the online data explorer that they prepared, yep. but we do hope that it will be wrapped into individual reports into industry sectors and what have you and that some of that information will still inform, you know, what we're aware of in terms of uh, the gender pay gap. Well, it seems like it's in the last few years we've become more aware of this kind of thing and if companies have been re- reporting for over a decade, maybe they've just been sticking with legacy reporting. So hopefully they're after this they can include those kind of numbers. Yeah, yeah. that would be great. And obviously this is based on data that's um, a couple of years old because, you know, that's what it takes for them to, to crunch it and get it all accurate and what have you. Make it readable. Yeah, well worth heading to the WGEA site, exploring in the data Explorer, um, particularly if you're having remuneration conversations and wondering what you're worth, there's a lot of information to be mined in there on that front. Rachel, any thoughts? Well, it's not actually the data is not actually that old because the reporting period is April to May of each year. So this year's um, period is about to open for the 2023 um, calendar year. Yes. Uh, one of the things that always strikes me about this, and this is an area that I'm spending a lot of time in, uh, it's um, really, at the moment um, very relevant to, to the work that I do uh, is that it's still being misrepresented so often um, by the likes of uh, Senator Canavan and also other um, various industry leaders. It's, as you said quite rightly earlier, it's not about comparing two people in the same role. It's about looking at the overall picture. It's about um, taking into account are there um, more uh, men at a more senior level and therefore uh, being at a higher pay band. And it does vary significantly from industry to industry because of the different demographic profiles in those sectors. Yes. And I think one of the things that has been said but not challenged uh, that some of the politicians have been saying is that, oh, it doesn't take into account different hours worked. Of course it does. Uh, sorry. As, as a data analyst, one of the basic things is that you don't just take your data points and shove them into a bucket. You make sure that um, you know for your part-time workers that you use a full-time equivalent. Uh, so you know this, this isn't just numbers that they're pulling out of a hat and going, "Wow, isn't this interesting?" This is actually a very serious uh, and um, rigorous analysis of the data. Um, one of the other comments that possibly got up my nose a little bit, uh, was uh, a criticism of, well, what are we supposed to do with this data? This doesn't help people in regions. Well, obviously, the employment opportunities are going to be different in regional areas. That doesn't mean that you can't still examine, assess and address some of these inequalities. Very well said. Yeah. 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 Gosh, it's good to have you with us tonight, Rachel. I may be a little bit more passionate about this. It's great. It's great. I love that. It's good to have an expert in the room. Um, well worth exploring that data explorer. You know, as you mentioned, it does actually you know exclude C-suite and it. It's um, got different breakdowns of genders at different levels, so there's so much more detail than just the organisation's percentage of gap reported um, that is getting most of the headline attention in the, in the papers at the moment. Uh, really worth going into, and I think our listeners are pretty data literate, so hopefully they'll get in there and have some fun and have some insights and explore their industry. Absolutely. Mm. Um, uh, just one that I've uh, seen come in um, 
Nintendo is suing um, an emulation emulation company called Yuzu um, for their um, emulation um, software that can be used on things like the Steam Deck. Um, The lawsuit, um, Nintendo alleges that Yuzu violates the anti-circumvention and anti-trafficking provisions of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or the DMCA, Um, and they've been in this position before where they sued a company called Dolphin um, for uh, creating emulators for the Wii and um, distributing it with um, Nintendo proprietary software, which is basically just a software key to allow the emulation to get around their copyright protections. Mm-hmm. Um, however, Yuzu doesn't have this issue. They're not using any proprietary software, but they are, are expecting, you would assume, people to go out and find their own um, BIOS keys to use the emulator with Nintendo um, products. Walking a bit of a fine line there, aren't they? Yeah. Um, yeah, Nintendo um, alleges that they're facilitating piracy on a colossal scale, um, <laughs> which is, you know, it's... Uh, I, not being a lawyer, it seems like a difficult um, uh, line to walk. Um, but, yeah, Nintendo is notoriously litigious trying to... Um, basically have a stranglehold on all their content. I think Super Mario for the original Nintendo is still $30 on the Nintendo, so... Yeah. Yeah, it's... Fair um, enough, too. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, yeah, not necessarily on Nintendo's side on this one. Yeah, what do it's you, interesting. Sorry, what do you think of their chances of succeeding here? Um, well, just going by um, reports, it, um, it's it's difficult to say because um, it's been 25 years since any um, precedent has been laid because... Um, it's not something that um, comes about all that often, and um, video games still somewhat of an emerging medium in this sense. So I wouldn't have thought there was a ton of money in the emulator market, but what do I know? Yeah, I yeah. think it's more passion projects for yeah. people, um, yeah. and it is true that it does facilitate piracy. But the harm it does, I think, uh, is outweighed by the good it does in keeping old titles alive because a lot mm. of uh, video game mm. titles just get lost to the ages because the data's lost, the companies um, dissolve and then don't keep any of the data. So. And I'm so excited by that that reuse market particularly that's particularly interested in Nintendo product. You know, I love chiptunes creators yeah. and so I can see, you know, that this sort of encroaches on their space a little bit and yeah, yeah it's a shame. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. All right. Um, there is a massive case that's coming up before the US Supreme Court uh, soon that it's um, it may trigger um, a bunch of extra regulation of the internet in the US, which would affect the world. Um, so state laws have been enacted in Florida and Texas that restrict how platforms like Facebook and YouTube moderate speech, and now their ability to do that is being tested in the Supreme Court. So if it does um, find in their favour, then it would require social media platforms to carry certain types of unsavoury or hateful content that is currently blocked or removed. And so it's a free speech argument that's very US-specific. Um, but the concern is because so many publishers are based there that it would have a massive effect on the internet. Mm. Um, normally, I, I wouldn't have been that that concerned about what would happen there, except that the, the makeup of the Supreme Court is so interesting at the moment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, you can read all about it on Wired. They are keeping um, close track of what's going on there. Yeah, usually I wouldn't be for this kind of thing. Like, I, I guess it's a case-by-case basis. Um and I think for the reasons that they're going for it, um, I think it's absolutely legitimate considering um, someone like Elon Musk just took away every single 
um, protection uh, on Twitter or X now. Yeah. Um, and we saw the mess that ensued. Yeah, just mm. letting free speech run wild in yeah. quotations. And it's, it's not like free speech is having a trouble, you know, propagating no. itself. Uh, if anything, all of the regulatory and moderation me- measures are failing to protect people enough. So, yeah, yeah it seems a little strange, doesn't it? The only it? thing you can't tolerate is intolerance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, last little quick piece of news, um, 404 Media have cottoned on to the fact that, you know, we were well aware that ghost kitchens were popping up, these little venues to make food um, and sell them on, you know, app delivery services without actually a, a real physical kitchen or you know, cafe or presence or whatever being in that location. It was just a cute little expression for the phenomena. Um, but now they may have ghost food. And by that, they mean <laughs> that they're using AI to generate images of potential food that you may be ordering. And, you know, in Australia, we're fortunate. We've got, you know, great consumer protections on, you know, misleading and deceptive conduct and all these sorts of things that I don't fully understand, not being a lawyer myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do feel confident that, you know, we've got some great standards. Um, but I... this is happening in the States in particular where it's been called out. And yeah. you just think, oh, it's going to be a very interesting challenge for some local legislators. I feel like this has been happening for years with fast food places. The the burger mm. never looks like the picture on the board. So Even when the board is a laminated thing and it's just faded and what have you, it was still downloaded off the internet. It was never originally photographed in that store. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. And yeah. it probably wasn't a burger either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be real. Yeah, it was a mix of um, so, um, super glue and um, yeah. food colouring. Everything's yeah. cake, everything's cake, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> well, yes, please. <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Little content warning in the next interview, there will be mentions and a discussion of adult material and online abuse. Now, just ahead of Taylor Swift's tour reaching Melbourne, a flood of doctored adult images of an objectifying nature purporting to be of Swift were distributed online. Law Professor and Lead of the University of Melbourne's Centre for Artificial Intelligence and Digital Ethics, Professor Jeannie Patterson, joins us tonight to discuss the range of problematic uses of deepfakes and the challenges of combating their use. Welcome to the show again, Jeannie. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Excellent. Great to have you. Now, you've, you've published two really fascinating pieces in uh, Uni Melbourne's newsletter recently, In Pursuit. Um, tell us about the Taylor Swift incident and, and what we should take from, from that. Uh, well, the Taylor Swift incident was that just before her tour here, there were a series of um, violent, pornographic, offensive images released involving Taylor Swift, um, which were created, we think, using an AI image generator um, that are freely available. Um, And those images were circulating on social media before they were taken down in response to outrage by Taylor Swift um, management and also her fans. It was actually incredible how both um, the lots of social media platforms where this was being disseminated failed to to capture this before it was widely seen, and then also the countermeasure that the Swifties came into into force and started flagging and reporting in a frenzy and and were so much more successful at getting this taken down. You know, what did that tell us about how far our, our content moderation has to come? 
It tells us our content moderation needs to come a long way, uh, but it also tells us that we need to start thinking about a, a coordinated response to deep fake image abuse, um, because content moderation can only really be one tool in a sort of suite of responses to this sort of problematic material. And it's definitely far too late by the time the material's already out there. At the moment, what sort of protections do Australians in particular have on this front? Well, in relation to um, deep fake internet image abuse, um, Australians actually probably have more protections than people in the US, um, though that's still not perfect, because we have the eSafety Commissioner and the eSafety Commissioner has such key powers to demand images to be taken down, um, which means that platforms here are reasonably responsive to private private individuals um, upset and distressed, even if they don't have, you know, fans and they're not Taylor Swift. So that's something. But of course, you know, even an even a sort of doctored intimate image being um, on a platform or available, even for a short period of time, can cause unhold, unheard of or unimaginable hurt and distress. Um, is this a problem that's new or is it just uh, a problem that's um, using new technology? Oh, it's not a new problem. Um, you know, image abuse, intimate image abuse has been around for a long time. Um, and it's, you know, it's an exercise, it's often an exercise of power against um, often women or other uh, uh, marginalised communities um, by somebody who, who wants to humiliate and embarrass them. And unfortunately, you know, it's still acceptable in our society to use intimate images to do that. What's happened, though, is the rise of generative AI has made it easier to create really realistic images um, using that technology. And you kind of don't even need now to have a sort of starting point. I mean, in the past, you thought it was a sort of cut-and-paste technology, where now it's a put-in-the-instructions and something realistic will come out. Are there reasonably any protections that individuals can take or do the protections really have to be at a systemic, at a society-wide level? Well, they need to, I think they need to be the full suite. I don't think we should place, take responsibility on individuals to respond to this problem. We need to place responsibility on gatekeepers and the gatekeepers are the people who develop the technology and the people who make the technology available for digital platforms. Um, and there are things they can do, um, you know, following the deep fake images that have been coming out of celebrities through using generative AI. The producers such as um, OpenAI have put tighter sort of controls on the type of images that can be prompted through that technology. So it's harder to prompt um, generative AI such as DALI or, or an equivalent to create images of celebrities um, that involve, you know, sort of offensive or pornographic content. But, you know, those those restrictions can... It's a kind of a cat-and-mouse game about whether they can come overcome. And, and there's also a lot of talk about watermarking so that it's possible to identify images that are artificial, artificially created. And um, I think there's some potential there. Um, and then I think there's an education piece. I think society needs to sort of stand up and go... Like the Swifties did, it's simply not appropriate. And so that what happens with internet image abuse, big fake or otherwise, is that it gets shared and shared and shared. And it's really important that people go, no, we're not going to share it. We're going to take it down. We're going to make sure that it's not spread and amplified because of the hurt and distress it causes 
or because it's causing, you know, democracy in the political process. So we need all of those responses. So who would be the bottleneck on this kind of thing? Would this be um, internet providers or um, someone like Google and um, Facebook? And um, who, who should we really be um, creating these policies and laws for to follow? Well, I'm afraid I'm one of those people that thinks that um, technology companies and platforms should not self-regulate. I don't think it should be left to them. I think there should be strong laws about this content. I mean, there already are, in fact. There's takedown powers. Um, I think there needs to be bigger incentives to put in place precautions. So, as you said earlier, it's not just taking down. Um, I think, though, the difficulty here is this. Um, platforms, digital platforms, have um, content moderation and they often use AI for content moderation. But the problem with that is that if you use an AI, it tends to be too, um, too inclusive, take down too much. So you may remember back where images of women breastfeeding were taken down as offensive to Facebook's content policy, um, images that were put up by sex workers, um, burlesque images, um, uh, sort of um, images of people who were celebrating their sexuality were removed. And that censorship. So, you know, it's easy to say we should have content moderation, but content moderation can't be automated, purely automated. It, you need a sensible human in the loop and we need oversight of what's being moderated. Otherwise, the voices of, of already marginalised people can be oppressed in the name of keeping the internet clean. And that's why this is so difficult. Um, well, like, uh, so um, marginalised people could use, like, Taylor Swift as a, an advocate for this kind of thing because she's got such a wide reach. Is How important is it having her um, involved in this? Yeah, I think it is important. I mean, you know, the US government has said they're changing their laws um, in response to this. I mean, it's a bit of a shame that it takes a celebrity to do that. Australia is actually further ahead. Some, a lot of US states don't have takedown powers. We do in Australia have, as I said, the takedown powers. But I guess what we want to see from the US and from Australia is stronger incentives to those who are providing the deep fake technology um, to have better mock to better controls and possibly watermarking. Because I've spoken about the problem of censorship of people's bodies, um, but there's no excuse for deep fakes um, that are used to hurt and humiliate people, right? So we need, we can have stronger protections, I think, um, that are identifying deep fake images. And one way to do that is to use technology. Watermarking is, a, is an approach where you're basically lodging identifying features at the pixel level, um, uh, so that an um, image that is a, do a created, an artificial image, can be identified. Now, there's a lot of stuff that has to be worked out to make that work, um, but I think that we need a technological solution as well as a legal solution, and as I've said, an educational response as well. And so that, you know, we don't have censorship of people celebrating our own bodies, but we also have a response against, you know, purely creative images that are only put out to hurt and humiliate. 
Professor Jeannie Patterson, uh, we have never found your role at the intersection of law and technology uh, more relevant. Um, we can we can see how it's all coming alive in this in this article. Thank you so much for unpacking a bit of the um, the, the problems of deepfakes at the moment um, and revenge porn and you know that sort of thing going on. If you want to hear more from uh, Jeannie Patterson's work, you can subscribe to the Pursuit newsletter or check out the Centre for AI and Digital Ethics, CAID. They're both at the University of Melbourne and um, we thank you for joining us again from overseas. Thanks so much, Jeannie. It's a pleasure. Always nice to talk to you. You too. Bye. Bye. Triple R. From social media to artificial intelligence, our world is now governed by algorithms, powerful tools that not only predict human behaviour but affect how we look at each other and ourselves. Could the digital revolution be killing feminism? These are not my words. That's a question posed by our next guest, Carla Wilshire, the CEO of Social Policy Group and author of the soon-to-be-released book, Time to Reboot Feminism in the Algorithm Age. We couldn't be more eager to get our hands on it. Uh, Welcome to the show, Carla. Thank you very much, and thanks, Vanessa. And, yeah, I have to say, wonderful that we start off with a tech issue, given it's the topic of AI. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we've we've started with Taylor Swift deepfakes this evening, so we're very much on brand. Um, Excellent. Yes. <laughs> but we're super excited to see you're about to release this book. It seems very timely. Um, so let's start big picture. We don't want to get into any spoilers before your book is out, but... As tech has flourished in general, how has gender equity been faring and what symptoms should we look to to the health of gender equity? Yeah, so, look, this is a really interesting question. It's what made me write the book. So I was kind of looking at this and I was looking originally at social media and this is even before ChatGPT came out and before AI really became a topical area. And what we were kind of noticing was that you were getting this increasing um, bifurcation, so like a, a completely different experience for young girls growing up to young boys growing up, and then this obviously extends to you know, other age groups. So men's experience online and women's experience online uh, are very different. Uh, and what does that mean in terms of, you know, if you get this, divergence in terms of life experience in in a new hybrid world where we're on digital. What does that mean for human relationships? What does that mean for gender equality? And what does that mean for women's rights? Um, And that was really the the question I brought to to the book as a starting point. Now, I'm a woman in tech, so I've got a particular lens on this. Um, But even as a child who started playing computer games online and playing with other live people and then realising that showing up in my gender, um, showing up as a, as a girl, um, gave me different experiences. It was a li- I was a little bit shocked at how extreme that was, so much so that I just played anonymously and, you know, pretended to be a dude, really. Um, but <laughs> yeah, which is a really common experience. So I think it's like 59% of women will hide their gender identity when they're gaming because it's just so much easier because the level of... Um, uh, assault that they get, verbal comments, um, you know, um, disparaging remarks uh, just based on gender is so high. So your experience is really common. But congratulations on perseverance. (laughs) Well, you know, you've got to get those frags. Um. (laughs) Look, I think you're part of the solution. We definitely need more women in tech. uh, And I think that's, you know, certainly where I got to as part of this process. 
So, you know, there's the women in, in tech angle on this, but in in more general, how might participation in digital spaces be affected by our gender identities and expressions? Yeah, and I think this is the interesting bit because it, it really is sort of transformative of all different parts of our lives. So it's our social relationships and how we engage. So you know, even if you look at the types of platforms that young girls use, you know, girls are much more um, uh, predominantly uh, utilising TikTok, Insta, Snapchat and Facebook, where young boys are using YouTube, um, uh, Twitch and Reddit. Um, you know, boys tend to even in gaming uh, go with shooter first in esports, whereas young girls will often go with family farm sim games or match three games. So you're getting a completely different experience in terms of what the digital um, world is. But at the same time, you know, it extends into everything. So it extends into how is technology changing the nature of relationships. And, you know, one of the really interesting bits of researching the book was just all of the new technologies around things like VR porn. Um, I was um, amazed to learn about the, the world of teleodildonics, um, so plug-in yes. devices. Um, it sounds so much more exciting I, than it is, maybe. <laughs> well, can I say, I've got a really... So far, I've given the book to various friends and my male readers have made it through the book largely based, I think, on teleodildonics um, and the section on VR porn. There you go. There's something for everybody. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. Um, But but also looking at digital lovers, you know, what does that mean in terms of, you know, if we're starting to utilise and integrate um, chatbots as part of our experience of intimacy and we're allowed to select exactly what the profile of our partner is. You know, do we want somebody who is always compliant to us, someone who is submissive, um, or do we want someone who dominates and controls us? You know, what does that do in terms of our settings around relationships and what does that mean in terms of driving, you know, gender equity in relationships, in in terms of women's safety, Um, but, you know, just also in terms of um, consent and and, and our notions around what we've built up there over the last um, decade. Um, I can't help but wonder about um, dating apps as well, such as Tinder and Bumble and um, Hinge and the like. Um, how has uh, how have these um, platforms changed uh, for uh, feminism in on on the internet? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so lots of different ways. Um, one of the interesting bits was sort of deep diving into what uh, we call dark forests, so areas of the internet where a lot of um, groups. Um, groups that are predominantly uh, women's groups on Facebook or men's groups on Facebook will download profiles um, and comment on, for instance, dating profiles of particular women um, or where women will use the same sort of platforms but it will be much more of a sort of safety warning, you know, um, don't date him, he was, you know, particularly horrible. Um, so, you know, you're kind of getting this almost a peer review um, on dating before you actually get to the dating experience. And, um, and I think that does, that does change a lot of the organics of how we meet people and how we discover people. Um, because your book isn't out yet, and I, I don't want you to have to unpack everything that's in it, I can, I can tell, you know, the content is far-ranging and considering so many ways in which tech is intersecting with our lives and then our genders layered on top of that. I wonder um, if you could talk a little bit about um, 
whether you come to any conclusions without necessarily sharing what those conclusions are and you know if you if you grapple with some of the the contemporary uh, conversations around you know proportion of solutions that are regulatory versus um, you know behavior driven social expectation driven what have you um, is is that solutioning space something that that uh, made it into the book yeah no, look, I think that's a great question and really our question today as well because I think we had some comments around um, uh, Andrew, Tate, Andrew Tate as an explanation um, mm-hmm. and the Manosphere as an explanation for uh, why we shouldn't be talking about the gender pay gap. Uh, so a lot of it is really around this idea of you know, if we're going to look at a digital world um, and we've started to, you know, the internet really started with this underlying idea of sort of libertarianism that the internet couldn't be regulated by governments. It, it existed everywhere and it was content created by people um, and shared freely. Information so, wants to be uh, free sort of thing, yeah. Correct, correct. And I think, you know, what, what we've had that's developed around that is this sort of idea of the manosphere where you kind of integrate libertarianism with sort of um, everything from, well, particularly with Andrew Tate, crypto of creation to kind of this idea of misogyny and... Um, and it all gets bundled together in a package. Um, but a lot of it is really around um, the fact that we now have so many online spaces and virtual worlds that are created largely by men with assumptions set within them. But those assumptions set within them aren't assumptions that we've all got to... We've all been able to collectively create over a long period of time. So if you contrast that to, for instance, you know, modern democracies where we've, you know... We've had a long struggle around women's rights, you know, and they've been hard fought, and it's been everything from, you know, our political rights to our biological rights to our rights around um, uh, our, our financial freedom. Uh, you know, a lot of the online world really has the potential to undo that because we don't have necessarily that same capacity to be able to say, well, let's, let's collectively set the rules. Um, Carla, Rachel here. I've just got a quick question for you about... Technology in the workplace, really. Um, I've been looking at some data recently showing the uh, varying impacts of technology on different workers, and there is a difference uh, in the impact on uh, male and female workers, but also a disproportionate effect on workers from a, a culturally and linguistically diverse background. I'm just wondering if uh, that intersection is something that is being addressed is it all yeah. right? Yeah, no, and I think that's a really important point. And I don't think we really have the data on this. You know, what we do know is that Microsoft is working with OpenAI. Um, we know that there's going to be a lot of integration of AI into the back end systems around a lot of jobs, which are administrative jobs, which are jobs that are predominantly held by women. The initial data seems to show that around eight out of ten jobs held by women are going to be significantly affected by AI, and about six out of ten jobs held by men are going to be significantly affected by AI. Either way, that's a huge, big disruption in terms of the labour force um, and the labour market. And I don't think we've yet, as a society, grappled with what would be the full implications of that. Um, but even there, you're starting to see a gender divide. And, and when you layer on top of that, obviously, cultural diversity or other minority um, uh, groups uh, and their particular vulnerabilities, uh, then then obviously you, you kind of get an increase in, in that level of risk. Uh, and, you know, one of the really classic examples is, 
even in terms of some of the recruitment tools that have been designed uh, by algorithms. The AI, because it's a self-learning system, will take a lot of the data that it's fed into it um, and it will then make decisions about who to recommend for jobs. And if the data being fed into it is CVs of existing employees and most of those employees are Anglo-Saxon white males, then it's going to reproduce that bias and, in fact, it's actually going to amplify that bias over time. Carla, that sounds um, so spot on and uh, this, this sounds like a book for the moment when we're all looking at Gen AI and when we look at how technology companies have continually failed to predict the wide-ranging influence of their product designs and to remove or at least mitigate the harms caused by their work. Uh, the book is Time to Reboot Feminism in the Algorithm Age. We've been speaking to the lovely author, Carla Wilshire. You've got some book launches coming up. Most importantly for the majority of our listeners, I imagine, is the Melbourne event on the 6th of March, so next week, 6.30pm, at Readings Carlton, in conversation with Nidal Nyon. Um, so we're very excited about that. But you've also got events in Sydney on the 4th and Canberra on the 20th of March. Um, all the best for those launch events, Carla, and thanks so much for speaking with us tonight. Many thanks, and thank you so much for having me on the program. A pleasure. Triple R. In Weed News of the Week, uh, have you been keeping up with Bhutan's foray into the metaverse? Well, they've released a metaverse gateway named Bhutanverse um, to provide a glimpse of the country's art, culture and architecture. It's launched by the very corporate-sounding Drug Holding and Investments, which is the commercial arm of the Royal Government of Bhutan, in collaboration with Smobler, a Singapore-based metaverse architecture agency, along with Sandbox, a leading decentralised virtual gaming world. Uh, and it follows the 2023 blockchain-based National Digital Identity Program that was launched in Bhutan. So a bunch of interesting things going on there. They're leaning into Web3. That fascinated me, so uh, I thought I'd share it. What's going on in, in events this week, Dan? Um, drone racing with Eastside FPV, first-person view for those playing at home. Uh, it's the largest drone-slash-multi-rotor racing club in the Southern Hemisphere, based out of Lewin Park in Melbourne's eastern suburbs, and they hold monthly race meets. Um, there are usually around 30 pilots in attendance and you can fly FPV indoors for sport or recreation provided the drone can't get out of the building. Uh, you do not need CASA approval. If you want to fly FPV outdoors, you must either be a member of a model aircraft association that has a pr approval to fly FPV. You don't want to uh, get sucked into a jet rotor or something like that if you're yeah, not so paying attention. Yeah, so this is the sort of club that you do have to join if you want to get this sort of outdoor flying experience. And yeah. it's so exciting, actually. Yeah. As someone who follows similar things like rally cars and what have you, yeah. it gives you the same sort of thrills. I, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but if I want to buy uh, a new toy like something like this, I put it in a cart and I think about it for a while <laughs> and it's been in the cart and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can justify spending the money, but I, th I think I'm I'm a going woman to. and we've heard that there are some gendered takes on these behaviours, Dan. So yeah. instead of the cart, I tend to put it on a Pinterest board. And uh, I think okay. that's about as gendered as it gets. <laughs> See, the advantage of putting it in a cart, though, is that certain marketplaces will notice that and try and offer you a discount to come back and purchase. Yeah, yep, I do get You've those. you got to catch the sweet window. Yeah. Yeah, love that. Um, also coming up soon at M Pavilion is Reworlding, Play the World We Want. It's happening on the 29th of February from 6 to 8pm, but there's also events on the 10th of March and the 14th of March. It's with a uh, friend of the show, Dr. Troy Innocent, and the RMIT Future Play Lab, which is a research lab developing playful and playable cities. Um, 
And there's a whole diverse group of experimental game designers involved as well. So if you want some sort of real-world immersive role-playing games set on the streets of Melbourne um, and utilising that amazing M Pavilion space as well, then uh, something to check out on Eventbrite, Rewilding Play the World We Want. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Um, it's been a fascinating show. We've, we've looked into uh, International Women's Week early. Um, thanks so much to our guests this evening, Professor Jeannie Patterson from University of Melbourne, helping us understand what's going on with uh, deep fakes, the, the sort of risks that they pose, um, where Australia stands currently with the eSafety Commission and what have you. And also to author Carla Wilshire who has a book coming out just next week and it's all about rebooting feminism in the algorithm age. I think there's lots of topics in there for everyone at the moment. So we're really grateful to them. I'm also very thankful to our hosts, Rachel Connor and Dan Morganti. Thanks for being with me. Oh, thanks for having us here, Vanessa. And uh, shout-outs to our Talks producer. You enjoy a little bit of time off, Lou. Uh, we appreciate your work for us. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.